0: Welcome to episode 42 of Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible, our companion podcast to Calvary's Read the Whole Bible in a Year plan. We are continuing in the four Gospels, uh, the story of Jesus's life and ministry. Our readings this week focus a lot on we have quite a few parables and teachings of Jesus, and also quite a few episodes of his uh, his conflict with
1: the worldly authorities and the powers of death. We're, we're still in the thick of his ministry. And like you said, there really does seem to be like a, a kingdom of God versus theme um, or a lot about the kingdom because we focused a lot in Luke. And that is one of the, the major themes in Luke. Um, but Luke and John make up the vast majority of our readings for next week. And so it was interesting, like looking through to find some of the themes here because Luke and John are just so different. Mm-hmm. But finding points where they overlap and, and talk about the same kind of thing is, I don't know, it was refreshing. It was neat. Um, can I start the uh, volley by asking you about the passage, about the coming of the kingdom of God? Sure. So in Luke 17, verses 20 to 37, we get this um, portion of scripture that is, it's kind of a connection to teaching in Matthew 24. But it starts, you know, once on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that could be observed, nor will people say here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. And then he gives some teaching uh, to the disciples. And so, one, this is one of the, the very controversial passages of scripture, because we get some talking about Jesus, about what looks like the coming of the Son of Man, which seems like either, uh, I mean, his return. There's been a whole lot of different questions about what he means there. Um, but would you be willing to talk a little bit about what's going on in Luke 17? Part of the reason why it's puzzling
0: is for the same reasons that we talked, I think, a little bit about last week, that, especially with the parables, uh, the part of what we're seeing with the parables, and this is not quite a parable, but it's I think it's kind of related uh, mm-hmm. to that. You know, because his... There are, there are certain features, I think, that are characteristic of all of Jesus' teachings, not just the parables. And one of them is this kind of intentional befuddlement uh, that I think you see a lot in John, just in the way he, you know, I don't know. I mean, it, it reads as if he's being intentionally confusing. And mm-hmm. I think sometimes he is, not in a uh, uh, you know malicious way, but more that he knows that, especially in this, in this setting, in Luke 17, it's the Pharisees, it's his opponents asking him a question. They're not necessarily actually wanting a real answer from him. They're wanting to catch him in something that he says that they can use as the basis for a charge for his imprisonment or his punishment or his death later on. And so I think that part of why Jesus speaks in these ways is to answer the question, but to do so in such a way that it sidesteps sort of the trap that they're trying to lay so that his audience has to sit and think about what he has to say. Like they can't just, they can't just immediately be like, ah, we gotcha, you know? And so I think for us, it's the same of like, we, 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 we also have to kind of just sit and try and mull over what, what he is saying, what he's trying to say. I think that this passage in particular has has had a lot of ink spilled about it, just because it seems to, uh, in some ways, it seems to to contradict like just the whole program up to now. Mm-hmm. You know, especially when Jesus says the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, and it's like, okay, but then what are the miracles? <laughs> and you're about to talk about how the coming of the son of man will flash like lightning mm-hmm. from one end of the sky to the other so like what you know and i think that 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 part of that is that we have to kind of re, retool or refine what we think of when we read or hear the phrase the kingdom of god but in a different way than they had to. And so I think we talked about this maybe last week or the week before, just that there were a lot of expectations. This was a, this was a time of great expectations for the Jewish people. And they were right to have these expectations because God was about to move in, in very significant and in universe-altering ways. You know, but you just see lots of little messiahs, little warlords, you know, pretenders to the throne of David, people claiming to be the messiah running around the country, you know, telling the people to do different things, mostly take up arms and get ready for a armed resistance against the Roman Empire, the Roman occupiers. And so, you know, for them, they're when they hear kingdom of God, they are hearing the glory days of David and Solomon, you know, let's get ready to rebuild an actual political state here in Israel. I think that often when we hear kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven, we think of going to heaven when we die. Mm-hmm. Like we tend to push it forward into that he's talking about the afterlife. And... I suppose at some point we'll need to try and and untangle a little bit some afterlife things. (laughs) Maybe once we get into Paul. Yeah. Because it's not not about the afterlife. (laughs) (laughs) You know, but again, so much with the reality, right, is that people, people take the whole truth of what Jesus is or what he's trying to say and they split it into bits. And some people gravitate toward the one bit and some other people gravitate toward the other bit. So it's like there is a sense in which Jesus is talking about a transcendent spiritual reality that we can't fully access here on earth and that will only come at the end of days and or when you die. So like there is an aspect of that to it and I think that's to some extent what he's talking about when he's saying it's not coming in ways that you can observe like it isn't a merely three-dimensional political you know military reality but at the same time there are aspects, there are ways in which the kingdom of God is present right now, whenever that right now happens to be. And that's what, he, that's what he says, that the kingdom of God is within you or amongst you or amidst you. You know, and so there is a sense in which the first century Jewish expectation was right in terms of they are watching their actual physical circumstances to change because of the coming of the kingdom of God. You know, and again, I think that you this goes back to the miracles of like, you know, a lame man for the hymn, the coming of the kingdom of God would mean he's healed. And then he is, Jesus heals him, you know? So the kingdom of God did come upon him. Yeah. And so I, I think that would be my, that would be my opening shot to be like how to kind of think about or, or, or try and, and tackle a passage like this, that this is, this is, and it actually might be notable that this isn't a parable because Jesus actually rarely talks about the kingdom of God, not in parable form. And so this is maybe the closest we really get for him to just try and tell people what's going on. (laughs) And it still doesn't really make sense to us. Um, You know, and I think, again, part of that is we're trying to... we're trying to take a you know a four-dimensional five-dimensional thing and and bring it down into our our familiar three dimensions it's just it's not all gonna fit all at the same time Um, but I think also as well just his audience and even us today like we're our readiness to receive the good news I think is something that increases over time right not that we don't understand it or that we're not saved by it when we first hear it but 15 years in on being a Christian, you're going to under, hopefully you're going to have a deeper understanding, a deeper appreciation and just a greater experience of what Jesus is talking about. So you can come back to a passage like this and go, okay, I hear things that he's saying now, not that I didn't hear the words before, but like, I know what he's saying now in a way that I I didn't before. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, no, I agree with that. This passage and the, the, Kind of connected passage in Matthew twenty four, they have sparked a lot of of discussion because they're so interesting and there's it's Jesus speaking in a way that's a little different than he does most of the time. Um, one of the questions that we get a lot is you know when it's talking about the return of the son of of the return of the son of man in the days of the son of man when the son of man returns, we have these hints of Daniel chapter seven a passage you've mm-hmm. heard us refer to several times which is the this this passage where the the Son of man is coming on the clouds right and it is a um, it is a passage that was very popular in this time but I think that one of the things that's important here is when you're asking the question is this talking about Jesus's return is this talking about his resurrection is this talking about his coming the first time uh, Pastor Ben I'd, I'd love to do you have an answer for us
0: yeah I think knowing what we know from Daniel 7, 7- I think that this is—he's—he's he's actually most likely talking about his ascension, um, or what we call the ascension. You know, his return to the throne of God in glory. You know, subsequent to his crucifixion and resurrection. And I think, I think that that's—I guess two two things with that. One is that I think that can be another example of us taking the whole truth and breaking it up. So obviously Jesus' death, his rising again, his his floating up to the throne of God <laughs> and his eventual return, those are four like distinct events that occurred on different days, you know, but they're also in some way just one all aspects of the one thing, which is Jesus becoming King of the universe and then and then the universe basically receiving that, you know, or or coming to be to be shaped by that. And so, yes, I think it's it's the ascension is kind of the particular thing in view but that doesn't rule out the resurrection or the second coming you know because again those things are part of the whole kingdom reality but i think it is you know and i think that that i would say that part of why that distinction matters is you know that i think that we some of the sometimes we read some of these passages and we immediately jump to it being about the second coming which i don't think is you know it's not sinful, you know, or anything like that. But I, I wonder if sometimes it it almost uh it's setting us up for greater confusion <laughs> or disappointment because it may not well, we should all be certain that it's not going to be like what we think it's going to be like. Yes, if, we should. If we That's learn, the thing we know. If for we sure. learn no other lesson from the religious leaders in the Gospels, it should be that God, when God finally acts, it will not exactly look like how we think it's going to look like. And if we're not at peace with that, we're going we're gonna to struggle. We're going to run into some problems. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, another thing that comes up a lot here is and in, in the corresponding passage in Matthew. Um, and later on we'll we'll have some questions about it in Paul is there's this question of people being taken and left uh-huh. And, you know, is this a rapture passage? Well, for it to be a rapture passage, this would have to be about Jesus's return and not his ascension, right? And I think that that's a important distinction. Um, but I don't think that a lot of the things that we think about um, being about the rapture, most of the time, I think Pastor Ben and I would agree, are not um, about the rapture. Whatever it looks like when Jesus returns and whatever that process is going to be, I think that scripture is less cut and dry and crystal clear than a lot of the times we, we like to talk about it as. And So when we get a little further, we'll discuss whether the rapture is a, an event that scripture talks about um, or, or not. But I do not think that is happening here. This is, I agree with Pastor Ben, most likely about the ascension of Jesus, because it's the part of the Christ event we talk about least, which is a real shame. You know, we we focus on the crucifixion, we focus on the resurrection, and we focus on the return, but we do not spend nearly enough time um, talking about the implications, the importance, the the spiritual significance of the ascension of Jesus, and stories like this one point to why it's so important
0: it is and again i think that that we have to be we have to learn to be comfortable to kind of move in and out of yes it's about the ascension but that includes you know the ascension is one part of a whole yes of a whole and you weren't saying you weren't saying different but just because i think that that later in this passage when we get into the you know one will be taken the other left it's like, all right, well, we know that didn't happen on the day that Jesus ascended into heaven. You know, like in terms of what it appears to be describing that somebody popped out of existence, you know, that didn't occur.
1: But you, you think it occurred? I don't think it. Ta- it's talking about someone popping out of existence, but I don't think. No, I, think I don't think either. so either. Okay. <laughs> but I think that that's how it's often read. Yes. <laughs> you know,
0: and so, <clears throat> you know, I think that this is an expression of, of judgment, you know, that people, two people who basically having identical lives, right? Both women at the grinding stone. One will be taken and the other left. I think that that means that now that, or once Jesus is ascended, you know, once he has taken his place on the throne of God, he is the judge. Like he has the authority to do that. He has the sympathy to do that. Now being a man, you know, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus says at the end of Matthew. And so I think it's this idea that he is now qualified and authorized to judge all humankind you know much more uh truly than we could because like we can't we you know i think the presumption is you can't we 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 couldn't decide between two people who whose lives basically look the same but he can you know and 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 so he'll do that and if it is some kind of a rapture i feel like it's actually a negative rapture it's because they say the disciples say, well, where are they taken, Lord? And he said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. And so it's this idea of like, you know, yeah, that that there's somewhere else, judgment. you know, that the people who are being, who have been deemed guilty or or uh, condemned, I should say, are being taken away somewhere, you know, uh, and the righteous ones, the faithful ones are, are the ones that are remaining behind. So one of the, uh, and I mentioned this in the kind of the intro, but a big theme that we see, and, and again throughout all the gospels, but I think that we had a lot of uh, stories, episodes in these readings, and so we wanted to kind of highlight at this time was just again this this kind of ongoing confrontation between Jesus, between the kingdom of God represented by and in Jesus, and the the powers of evil, uh, death and its henchmen, you know, and kind of the tyranny of sin. Um, and we see this, I mean, very directly, obviously, in the exorcism stories. I mean, that's that's kind of the, the most naked, you know, place where that happens. Uh, but I think we also see it in a lot of Jesus' interactions with death, with uncleanness, you know, and, and with dead people. And one of the most famous of these stories is John chapter 11, hmm. which is the resurrection of Lazarus. Uh, and I think my first question maybe would be that Jesus tells them... So Jesus has a good friend named Lazarus. He's Martha and Mary's brother. Uh, and they send word to him that he is sick. And they're asking him to come and heal him. And when Jesus hears this news in verse 4, he says, This illness does not lead to death, although it does because uh-huh. Lazarus dies. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And so maybe you can you can shed some light on what does Jesus mean because lazarus does die and what does he mean that this is intended for god's
1: glory um and this is one of those places where you're if you put yourself in the story jesus just said this is not going to end in death this is not going to lead to death and here's jesus telling his disciples this and then when they finally get there after taking their time by the way um lazarus is dead and anytime in john you find one of these misunderstandings i mean something important is happening they have they're all over one of my professors at Bible college used to say that whenever you see something like a paradox or a contradiction or any of that in John, that that is a truth standing upside down, waving its arms, drawing attention to itself, right? It's, it's a sign of a very important thing happening. Because if you imagine being one of the first readers, if you didn't already know the story, as you're, as you're going through this, how disconcerting would it be to hear Jesus say, death is not part of this story. And then he gets there and he's dead. You know, that's very odd. And so another thing that can happen to us is because we are um, so accustomed to the story, the the bigness of it can be lost on us. In the Synoptic Gospels, we've had other resurrections, right? Jesus has has brought people back. But this story really gets us into it. And I mean, the man has been dead for days. This isn't Mm -hmm. a a person that passed a few hours ago that- This is a person who they believe the spirit He's quite dead. Yeah. Was departed thoroughly dead. Thoroughly yeah. dead, not mostly dead. <laughs> he is thoroughly dead. And so Jesus shows up and and people are crying, you know, and obviously there's also professional mourners, which is a thing we don't do that I I just wonder if that would be make our funerals a little spicier if there were professional wailers at them. But anyways, I think that
0: only works in a culture where, you know, Expressions of grief are allowed. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's true. We, uh, we don't like, w- grief makes us uncomfortable, but yeah, well, that's deeply, a topic deeply. for another time. So Jesus shows up and and Martha seems to express just tremendous faith that, you know, if you'd have been here, he'd have been okay. And she doesn't seem to be reproaching him. This isn't a criticism of Jesus. It's an acknowledgement of how, how powerful he is. And they don't really know how intentionally he lollygagged. No, they don't. In fact, they'd probably be really upset if they found out that he lollygagged on purpose. And then Jesus says these famous lines, I'm the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. Whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Okay. okay. Well,
0: that's obviously not true,
1: right? Because Lazarus <laughs> has just died, and other people die. You're gonna die. You're gonna die. They all die, right? And so is Jesus lying? And then here comes this moment where he he says, "Lazarus, come forth." I always think of the Carmen song, the the Lazarus come forth Carmen song gives me literal goosebumps every time I listen to it. Hmm. Really, I know that your feelings about Carmen are a certain <laughs> way, but this song is really good. Um, but, uh, uh, so he asks where Lazarus is, is buried. They move the stone and nobody wants to do that. If you can imagine four days after laying a loved one in the ground, someone says, let's dig them up. Like, I mean, that's just not a great. So then Lazarus comes out and they take off his grave clothes and, and he, he goes away. So why did he do this? Why did he let other people die? Why did he resurrect Lazarus? Again, this is a, uh, a statement, a parable being acted out on the kingdom of God. Death is something that invades, comes into the world in Genesis 3. It's a result of sin. It's, um, sin, you could say, is one of the henchmen of, of death. You could say that one is bigger than the other. I, I tend to think that death is the primary problem and sin is one of the symptoms of that. And what Jesus is showing here is that the kingdom of God is not actually overcome by death. It is The force of life is so strong, it is stronger even than death. And what he's promising here isn't that everyone who follows him is never going to experience a physical death. It's that life is how the story ends. Um, from a human perspective, we tend to think that all of our stories end in death, and and Jesus is turning that upside down. He's saying no. All of a, all the stories of the people who follow me end in life, and that's just remarkable and powerful and incredible.
0: Yeah, there seems to be a certain flippancy with which jesus speaks about death Philippancy may not be exactly the right word but that he unconcertedness well he just doesn't seem to take it quite as seriously as the rest (laughs) of us do (laughs) you know when i uh i was preaching a few weeks ago on i don't even remember what philippians i guess but just uh, you know just this idea of like that jesus seems uh that it's, it's like he knows something that everybody else doesn't, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and I think that this is, this kind of puts the, puts the finger right on it, you know, of like, he knows the reality of the kingdom of God and, and the power of the creator, you know, that really is greater than death. And, uh, it is, that's one of those things where it's like, yeah, I, I I wish, you know, I don't know, like, I just wonder what it was like to be around a man who, really truly was not well i shouldn't say he wasn't afraid of dying i think he was maybe there towards the end not exactly for the same reasons as we are but I yeah i don't he think was, he was afraid of the death
1: part i think he was afraid of all the things that had to well, happen well that,
0: yeah. that's fair <clears throat> yeah the process of getting there um but yeah just the, the just the, the the confidence you know i don't know of just the the assuredness of like yeah <laughs> <laughs> well so all that to say John eleven also is famous for kind of a more dumb reason that it contains the shortest verse in the Bible. And Jesus wept. That Jesus wept, and so all right, so all that's true, and yet Jesus still stood
1: in front of his tomb, his friend's tomb, and cried. Why? That's a good question. Uh, I think that he cried for a couple of reasons. He is surrounded by sadness, right? These people he cares about, he cares about, have for days now believed that their brother is gone, and they've been grieving. And I think that um, I think that part of this is that the sign that he was preparing to make, that he'd been planning to make the whole time, it has a cost, and it has a cost with these people that he cares about losing their brother and believing that he's gone for good. Um, and I, I think that made him sad. I think also the death of his friend. I mean, Lazarus is dead at this moment, and I think that loss made him sad. Um, if you think that... If you had the power to resurrect and you went to your friend's house four days after they died and you see a funeral going on, if you wouldn't be moved, um, that'd be strange. <laughs> and so I think that even though he knows what he's going to do, even though he knows how the story ends, there's sadness here. And I think that that is appropriate. It also shows us how human he is. Um, He is a person who weeps at at the loss and the sadness of people he cares about. So one of the most famous stories in all of the New Testament, one of the most (laughs) famous... It's like, are you choking up at saying New Testament? New Testament! (laughs) One of the most famous stories in the New Testament is the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's in Luke chapter 10. It's one of the stories that is not repeated. Uh, in the other Gospels, which is a little bit of a surprise because it's just really a remarkable story. There's elements of it, but the so basically, he is asked by a expert in the law, "Now, what must I do to inherit eternal life?" Which is a really weird question right from the beginning because you don't do anything to inherit. In fact, if you've done something to cause yourself to inherit something, then that's probably bad. Right. And so so but this kind of question was being asked about a lot in the first century. This was a question the rabbis batted around a lot. What do we have to do in order to become part of God's family, to be inheritors of of the life to come? Well, and, and just to
0: piggyback off that, I mean, I think it goes back again to well, what what did they mean by eternal life and how was that connected to these conceptions yeah. of the kingdom of God? Right. So it's like for some people, the answer was we have to fight the Romans. That's how mm-hmm. we inherit eternal life.
1: Well, because it, the word eternal doesn't mean eternal. Like it, it, it means heavenly. It's, it's, that's the word here. It's Ionios. It's the, <clears throat> the, the word for um, above or front, not above, yeah, but sort of like, well, it's not exactly what we usually mean by
0: otherworldly, but that's kind of the sense of it. It's like there's this other world, this other world,
1: the life of that other world, you know? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. It's the life from heaven. Yeah. And so the, the, what, what do I have to do to inherit this? And so he says, well, what's written in the law? And the, the guy gives a good answer. Mm-hmm. Um, love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Well, Jesus gave, himself gives that answer
0: in the Gospel of Matthew.
1: Yes. So it, so it is a good answer. A very good answer. <laughs> and then he says, you've answered correctly. Do this and you'll live. But the man wants to justify himself, which is a bad sign. Oh, there's it. there it is again. That's two justifies in Luke. Interesting. Interesting.
0: Carry on. I'm sorry.
1: So he asks Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And so Jesus tells this story, this famous story. Um, and let's see here. How do we want to do this? Do you want me to just, do you want me to talk about it? Do you want me to bat something over to you?
0: Oh, I mean, I don't think we... Yeah, it's a famous story. So I think if we had questions or just wanted to comment on it.
1: Yeah. So what's so interesting about this, we've just read the Old Testament. We know who the Samaritans are, right? We get hints in the New Testament, of course. We've already, in the Gospel of John, talked a little bit about who the Samaritans are. But these are not people you expect to be the heroes in the stories of Jewish rabbis. That is a big surprise. Yes. And so what happens is you've got this man who is going from Jerusalem to Jericho and he's attacked by robbers. Now at the time with bandits, the common wisdom was if you just give them what they want, you'll be left alone. So this man tries to resist them and they beat him up and they leave him half dead. And so this, this priest is going down the same road. Now the priests are the, the people that work in the temple, right? And they serve for a couple weeks at a time and most of them live in Jericho. So he's, He's going home after two weeks and he sees this man and he has a he has a a conundrum because the man is if he's actually dead, then he's unclean. And if the priest touches him, then he's going to have to go back to Jerusalem for like another week to become ritually pure again. Also, if he's an Israelite, the priest has a responsibility to him. But if he's not an Israelite, if he's an Egyptian, if he's a Samaritan, whoever he is, the priest has no responsibility to him. So the priest crosses so that he doesn't have to get too close. So he can't know if he has a responsibility to this man. And then a Levite, who's like the assistant to the priest, comes. And it's kind of the the same thing. Oh, and the priest also is rich. And so he's probably got a horse. Like he has the ability to take this man wherever he needs to go. And they just pass on by. But then this Samaritan, the one who is the antagonist in all the rabbi's stories from the first century, not the protagonist, Jesus puts him in an undesirable, and he does what the priest and the Levite should have done. He transports him him like the priest should have done. He binds his wounds like the Levite should have done. He spends money on him, undoing what the, the thieves had done, right? He is showing the justice and setting rightness of the kingdom of God through his actions and he was asked who's my neighbor and jesus doesn't really answer he he describes how you become a neighbor Mm -hmm. to other people and and it's anytime there's a need and you have the ability to meet it jesus seems to be suggesting you are responsible to do so that's what love looks like well and that word neighbor i think was freighted with
0: particular meaning for them right that it i mean for us it obviously means somebody Mm -hmm. who lives near you you know but uh and i think it it carried a similar similar meaning except like in the old testament you know there seems to be a much more of like there's obligations to the people who literally live in the same village as you do you Mm -hmm. know your neighbors whereas people from distant villages is not necessarily you know or the the rules are slightly different or at least by the first century there was discussion about like well how much of an obligation do we really have to people we don't know or like who who is included right is if every israelite you know uh, Judah
1: Judean is my neighbor you know what does that mean for other people or yeah just yeah are these people I have to have a close relationship with or are these just people that are near me is this anyone I encounter who is this person mm-hmm. yeah and the word neighbor actually carries both of those meanings kind of like it does today you may mm-hmm. know your neighbors really well you might really know the couple that or the family that's a block or two away from you and call them your neighbors And have no idea who the people are that live in the house next to you. I mean, the same, same... like
0: the word neighborhood doesn't really have a fixed, you know, for different people that can mean different things, very different geographical, you know, Mm -hmm. ranges.
1: Yeah. And so the call here really is to love and to show the love that Jesus is showing those around him. The, the love that is the language of the kingdom um, to everyone you come across. And it, I love how brilliant he is as he tells the story, because he's put them in a, a treacherous position. You never want to be rooting for the Samaritan. And yet the Samaritan is the virtuous one here. I just think it's brilliant.
0: Well, I think it's an, it's another articulation of just this, this theme throughout, I think Jesus teaching. And we see this even in the statement at the beginning, when the expert says, you know, what is, what is the, uh, sum up the law and it's love the lord your god with all that you are and love your neighbor as yourself you know and that we the jesus over and over again seems to be saying that you can't love god but then hate quote-unquote hate ignore ostracize mistreat your brother or your neighbor i should say You know, so it's just this idea of like the thing, the religious stuff is fine as long as it doesn't become about itself, you know, and so it's like, all right, so the priest is clean in order so that he can minister at the temple and bring a little bit of the kingdom of God on down into earth, right? People Mm -hmm. would be forgiven, would be cleansed, would whatever. It's like, all right, so he has the opportunity to help someone. And in his mind, it's more important that he not do that. You know, and and I think that just it's like that God, it seems that what part of what Jesus is saying is that God's will for us is not to downgrade helping other people and serving and loving other people so that we can complete whatever the religious thing happens to be, you know. And so it's like in our context, it's like, all right. Some interruption happens on my way to church. You know, well, I think even a couple, I won't use any names, but it was a couple years ago now. But I think we had a family coming and they saw somebody on a bridge overpass who looked like they were in distress or were like about to jump. And I think they might have known the person Mm -hmm. even. I'm not sure about that. But so this family stopped, (laughs) got out, and helped this person, called the ambulance, all this other thing, you know, rather than, and that's kind of an extreme example. But I think. We can, you know, I put myself in that situation. It's like, all right, so if it's a Sunday that I was preaching and I drove by somebody that I knew and could tell that something was wrong with them, but you know, people are counting on me. You know, whatever I, I gotta get there. And it's like, well, oh, I hope that I would act like this other family did. Like I think Jesus is exhorting us to, of like, no, that that can deal. You know, mm-hmm. what use is it to go and preach and but then let somebody
1: jump to their death or, you know, whatever else. The last story that we want to focus in on specifically is from Luke chapter 14, starting in verse 25. And it's just, it's 10 verses. And um, it's just a little bit before, or I'm sorry, a little bit after the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. But we have this, this time where large crowds are traveling with Jesus. And he turns to them, and he he gives some controversial teaching about the cost of being a disciple. He says, if anyone comes to me, and as my translation reads, and does not hate father, mother, wife, and children, brothers, and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Ben, can you explain to me why Jesus wants me to hate my mom?
0: And we talked about this a week or two ago, because it's not the first time that this sort of language has come up with Jesus you know just that this sense of hate you know isn't a uh an emotional you know kind of the common usage of hate we know that because jesus didn't hate his own mother so that is not what he means (laughs) (laughs) but he certainly acted in ways that contravened the common understanding of what i mean he's the firstborn as far as we understand it's like there were certain obligations upon him you know that he was shirking by running around the countryside with his dudes, you know, and followers causing trouble and getting on the the bad side of the powers of this world. You know, so you think about, yeah, just that there Mary sits at home, like hearing these wild things about him. When Jesus does show up to Nazareth, they try and throw him off a cliff. You know, you think about the dishonor and the shame that I mean, the Bible doesn't tell us really much about that, but it had to have been happening to, the, to his family. I mean, there's a reason they showed up in Capernaum and tried to drag him home because people were saying he was nuts. You know, so I think that in that sense, you know, we could say that Jesus, quote unquote, hated his family just because he he didn't kind of follow the cultural script for what it would mean for him to to honor them or or whatever else. And we again we know that Jesus loved his his mother and his sisters and um and so I think that it's a similar thing for us of like, yeah, there might be cultural rules about what we can and can't do, but the coming of the kingdom, you know, and the proclaiming of the kingdom supersedes those things. You know, so you think about all these other disciples of his who literally dropped what they were doing. You know, uh Peter's mother in law lives with him. He Jesus healed her from a fever, but Peter is not earning any income as a fisherman. How is the household being supported? We don't know. Yep. You know, I'm sure that, that they probably did handicrafts or like, you know, I'm sure they were there's some way that the ladies were either sewing nets or something, but like they were not earning nearly as much and they weren't earning. They wouldn't have earned that much anyway, with Peter being a fisherman. But like that's ended. And so it's like all right. Peter hates his his mother-in-law, you know, Peter hates his wife. Um, And I think that it's that, that is kind of what is in view here of just that the calling. And of course, as we know, going on in Christian history... (coughs) different christians are called to different things right we're not all necessarily called to drop what we're doing and and, you know go serve the lord somewhere but any of us could be and i think that that in some sense is the idea here of like if you're not ready to do that and the call may never come but if you're not ready to do that then you can't be jesus disciple and i think that ultimately i think that part of what jesus is talking about is the fact of death that one day you will walk away from your family, you know, leave them without your support, whatever else. Unavoidable, it's going to happen. Like you will die, you will be removed, you know, from this world. And it's like can you face that, you know, with obedience, with peace, die well? You know, we've we've talked about that before, not on the podcast, but it's just been a theme in our preaching of what does it mean to die well? You know, to die for a purpose, uh, to die as a blessing, you know, and I think that that when people approach death, you know, and kind of a, uh, a uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Kind of clinging to things, you know, like, oh no, but I want my life to go this way, blah, blah, blah. It's like, well, that's not a good way to die because it's going to happen to all of us. Like, we're all going to take up our cross in that sense, you know, and follow Jesus to the place of death. We know, as we just talked about from the Lazarus story, that that's not where the story ends, but it is where all of our stories pass through, you know, and so it's unavoidable. And how are we going to face that? You know, are we going to face that with the same confidence and hope and trust that Jesus has? Or are we going to go the way of all the world, you know, and either trying to ignore death or do all that we can to forestall it?
1: Yeah, I could say amen to all that. The idea of, and when we think of the word love in our culture, you know, when you, when you love something, we tend to talk about them all as though they're all equivalent to one another. And that's just not the case. One of the things Christians have to do is, is have ordered loves, ordered commitments. And so I'm committed to my church members. Um, I'm committed to my wife more, right? And right. that's not something to apologize for. And so what Jesus is telling us here is that beyond that, beyond my commitment to my mother, to my wife, to any of it, is my commitment to him. Now, that doesn't mean that I need to have more warm fuzzies for Jesus than I do for my right. wife. Like That's right. just not a thing that's possible. What it means is that I will, first of all, I will love my wife better if my commitment to Jesus comes before her. But also, if at any point my commitment to Jesus is in conflict with one of these other things that I love or that I've I've been committed to, then I choose Jesus first. And I've already made that decision. I'm his first. My identity is first in him. And I think that that's a, a really important part of this is that we tend to be very, um, we have so many blessings in our time and our culture, and so many things about our lives that are um, comfortable and make them make our lives pretty easy, that the idea of having to let go of some of that, or that some of it might actually be bad, that Jesus might call us away from some of it, is hard. But you know, the, the call to be a missionary in a difficult part of the world you know, that may not be your calling, but if it's not your calling, the reason can't be, I know it's not my calling because I love air conditioning too much, right? We can't right. We can't value these things that eternally either don't matter or are not primary in the heart of the Christian. We are called to put him first. And I think that's a big part of what's happening here. And he's telling you, like, know this ahead of time. You know, he, he gives these analogies about about you know, if you're gonna build a tower, don't you need to estimate, count the cost. What's this gonna cost you? Well, um, your marriage might need to change or you, you might not be able to have the job you have now because you can't do it ethically mm-hmm. or the way that you live your life, the, the habits that you have, all of those things, you might have to let those go in order to follow me. Are you willing to do that? And I think that's a, a really important thing for us to think about one of my professors used to say, "You know, if your faith hasn't cost you anything, then it may not be worth very much." And that that hits me hard because, again, we just so value our comforts, and it leads to this temptation for us to be Christians on Sunday morning and then just not really think about it for the rest of the week. Just live our lives however we want to. And what Jesus is telling us is that is just not an option. Um, you can't be a sometimes Christian. That is that is what's known as not being a Christian. This has been Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible. Stay hungry, my friends.
0: Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible is a podcast ministry of Calgary Community Church. All contents are under copyright. Our theme music is by Alex Productions. Any thoughts and opinions are solely mine and Clayton's.